Best Book Bits podcast brings you Roosevelt Montes, a senior lecturer at Columbia University. He holds a PhD in English in Comparative Literature from Columbia University as well. He's also the director of Center for Core Curriculum at Columbia College from 2008 to 2018. A Renaissance man who loves literature and writing, as well as being director of Columbia University's Freedom and Citizen Program, he speaks and writes on history, Meaning and the Future of Liberal Education, and is the author of Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life, and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Roosevelt, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. No worries. Now, what a book and a personal story. Now, let's go all the way back to when you and your brother took that first flight, three hours that changed your life. How did your story unfold from I came from the Dominican Republic to New York. It's a as you said, about a three-hour plane flight, but oh my God, I might have as well landed on Mars. It was a culture shock. I didn't speak English. It was also a shock at a kind of development level. I grew up in a rural mountain town, and here I was in the middle of New York, in the middle of the decade of the 80s. And yeah, you couldn't speak English, and you landed in New York. What was the next steps for you? What did you do then? How did your journey unfold, and where did you start? Those were pretty rough years coming in. We I had come to the stage with my older brother to join our mother, who had emigrated a few years earlier. She had a minimum wage job in a garment factory. She lost that job not long after we came. We ended up living in the basement of a distant relative went to the public, the local public schools, middle school for me, that's seventh and eighth grade. My first grade was seventh grade. The local public school was a pretty under-resourced, rough, difficult environment. And from there, I went into the local high school. And that was a sort of a better situation in that this high school, John Bond High School in Flushing, Queens, happened to be at the time, it probably still ranks pretty high up. At the time, it was the most diverse high school in New York City. It is because of its location, it is at the nub of, of various immigrant communities. So there were a lot of immigrants, a lot of different languages spoken. And like me, there was a kind of cohort of immigrant kids that were looking to school as their way out of poverty and marginality. So my sort of immediate peers were pretty high achieving and very serious students. And I just followed along. And it was that work in high school, that environment that nourished the kind of intellectual orientation that landed me at Columbia, where I studied as an undergraduate and where I have been in one way or another ever since. Yeah, awesome. And what did you, what got you into studying books? What was that? And what was the catalyst for education that changed and changed your life for a better future? Do you remember what sort of kickstarted the journey on that? There were a couple of really crucial junctures and influences. One was in high school, my first year of high school, I made this relationship with a person who turned out to be a really important, decisive mentor in my life. Somebody who sort of in the hallway reading a philosophy book and engaged me and he continues to be my friend to this day. So he was very important in guiding, orienting, mentoring me. But influences go back even Further than that, the household I grew up in, the Dominican Republic, with my father, was extremely political. My father was a kind of left-wing Marxist dissident who spent time in jail, was an opponent of the right-wing regime. So I grew up thinking. I grew up listening to debates and interested in the world of ideas and interested in a world that was larger than my own sort of domestic 
personal space. So I think that was a sort of a crucial orientation that I came to the United States with already and which set me on the path of, of scholarship and the life of the mind. Yeah, understood. Yeah, it makes sense. One of the things I found interesting, you had a key passage about how people in the Dominican Republic react to what Americans throw out in the garbage. Can you describe this encounter of cultures and how you found treasure in someone else's trash? What book did you find? Yeah, there's a, in the Dominican Republic, there, there are a lot of people from there in New York and they would go back and talk about this place of unbelievable affluence where you could just pick stuff from this, pick up stuff from the street, TVs, couches, appliances, and furniture of all kinds. So I had, a, I had a kind of a habit of always checking out the piles of garbage and indeed did find a number of interesting things there. The most decisive of which was a pile of books that my neighbors have thrown away. And I fished out two volumes from there that whose names could have rung a bell. One was a volume of Shakespeare and one was a volume by Plato the dialogues of Plato that record Socrates' last days. And that's the book that I started reading and used me to ancient thought, to philosophy. I didn't really know what I was reading. I didn't know, didn't really have a conception of what antiquity was, or didn't have a conception of really how far away this man I was reading about was. But that book was so profoundly transformative for me. And one of the ways in which it was is that it opened the path to this relationship I alluded to before. That was the book that teacher saw me reading. He, that teacher is a Greek man himself. And he was just wide eyed with astonishment that this kid who's struggling in English is here reading the dialogues of Plato. So he became a mentor and Plato, Socrates became a model for the intellectual life, a model for the kinds of questions, the kinds of pursuits that would come to really shape my life and career. Yeah, excellent. Let's fast forward to why you wrote the book. So what's the book about the rescue of Socrates? And what is a liberal education for the people out there that know what liberal education is? The book is fundamentally about just that issue, liberal education. And part of what motivates it is that it is a thing that is so poorly understood. It gets thrown about in public discourse a lot. People sometimes think that liberal education means like politically liberal as opposed to conservative. Like you go to university and you become a commie, you become a, a left-wing activist, and that's because you've got liberal education. But in fact, liberal education goes back way before our kind of political divides right now. It goes back to ancient Greece. And the idea there was what kind of education is appropriate for a free individual? And a free individual in the context of Athenian democracy meant a citizen, meant somebody who participated in direct democracy in the shaping and govern governance of the society. They made laws, they sat on juries, they made foreign policy. Every aspect of Athenian city life was determined democratically by debate and deliberation of the free citizens. So what kind of education are we going to provide for individuals to prepare them for this task of collective self-governance. That's what liberal education is. And to this day, that remains the kernel of the idea. What does an individual need to A, participate meaningfully in a collective democratic project of self-governance, and B, what does an individual need personally to organize his or her life in a way that is satisfying, in a way that is productive, in a way that leads to the fullest 
human flourishing available to the person. That is what liberal education is about. Yes, said, and especially we're in the age of education, information, overwhelm. And the old saying is to know where we are, we need to know where we've been. To understand the present, we need to understand the past as well. In terms of where we come from in education, philosophy, and all the great people, books, and stories behind us. We're at the apex of civilization, but we've got a mountain. We live on a mountain of information, and we need to know where that base comes from as well. So the, these great authors... In your book, you talk about four of them. So that's St. Augustine, Plato, Sigmund Freud, and Mahatma Gandhi. You've probably been asked this a million times, but why these four? I'm sure there's others, but how did you choose these four individuals and what impact did they have on your education? It was actually hard deciding what four authors I wanted to showcase in making the case for liberal education. So the book wanted to do three things. One was to tell the story of my own intellectual development and how liberal education had shaped my own life. B, talk about the history of liberal education, explain what that was. And three, exemplify the kind of liberal education that I had through the reading of great books. So finding those four authors was a bit challenging because so many authors have been important to me and so many authors I think are worthwhile people's attention. Those four, however, rose to the, to, to the top because for idiosyncratic, sometimes accidental reasons, I happened to read them at decisive, pivotal points in my life, and they had an outsized impact in the way that I thought about myself, in the way that I approached the world. And in retrospect, I realized that part of what accounts for that is that these four authors are people who are utterly devoted to self-exploration. That is, utterly devoted to understand the inner resources of their own mind and their own heart. They're always looking at the world. They're all very engaged with the world in politics and religion and in, in clinical psychology. So they're not withdrawn from the world or kind of self-absorbed, but their engagement with the world is always an occasion to look inside, to look deep and to search for a grounding, to search for an understanding, to search for some kind of clarity, some kind of authentic vision within themselves. And that sort of self-exploration the search for understanding, for self-knowledge, is the through line of these four, four writers, and in some ways the through line for my intellectual trajectory. Yeah, St. Augustine, what's the story with him? If people don't know who he is, how he converted to Christianity, became a saint, what's his story and how does it relate to your life? So the key text that I read is, Augustine wrote a lot. He was a major writer in antiquity, third, fourth century. He wrote a sort of autobiography called The Confession. And this is a book in which he looks at his life and his trajectory from the time he was born to his conversion to Christianity. And it's a sort of intellectual and personal autobiography. He had made a career as a teacher of rhetoric. Now, back in, in antiquity, in, in Rome, part of the Roman Empire, a, a, a teacher of rhetoric was essentially a philosopher, but somebody who thought deeply about the questions of life and taught students how to essentially be free citizens, both philosophical, ethical, legal, historical studies, but all having to do with language, expression, understanding. So he was a superstar teacher of rhetoric, exploring all of the deep philosophical questions that preoccupied his time. And this questioning initially had led him away from Christianity. His mother was a Christian, but he soon thought that Christianity was foolish and irrational and superstitious and not worth anyone's time, but he wanted answers to the big questions in life. So he goes through a series of philosophical religious experiences and little by little, 
he draws closer and closer to Christianity until finally, in a kind of dramatic climax scene, he has this experience in a garden in his house in Milan and becomes converted to Christianity. It is an, and Augustine, because he's a teacher of rhetoric, he has at his disposal extraordinary expressive rhetorical tools for the project that he's doing, like explaining his life, explaining his own psychology, explaining his own evolution of thought. So we know the inner life of St. Augustine better than we know the life, inner life of any individual in antiquity. And one of the things that strike you reading St. Augustine is how modern and contemporary he seems, how so many of the things that he articulates and struggles are recognizable to an individual 2,000 years later in a different culture, a different time, a different language. There is this powerful sense of recognition when you read Augustine. One, one famous line people know Augustine is when he's struggling to, to become a Christian. He says, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. So he articulates things that are quite vivid, vividly felt by even contemporary people. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And just a side note, Liberal Humanities was invented at Columbia, is that right, in the 30s? And it was offered to read one classic book a week, and that was considered a radical thing back in the time. Can you expand on the history of that with literature, humanities, and why it's really important at Columbia? Yeah, that's right. So at the turn of the 20th century, as Columbia University in the city of New York, one of the oldest universities in the country, part of a kind of a small cohort of very elite institutions. Columbia at that point was undergoing a kind of identity crisis and transformation. And it had to make a decision between being a elite school for the traditional creme de la creme of society, prep school boys, or to turn towards the new influx of immigrants that the city represented. And it made the decision to go urban. So it dropped its Latin requirement, it dropped its Greek requirement, and began to organize a curriculum that was meant to sort of absorb and democratize the student body. Now it's a complex history, not always not always pretty. Colombia, like all of the other elite schools, were also worried about having too many Jews and did all kinds of things to exclude and keep down the number of Jewish students. But it's in that in, in that mix that Colombia creates this course that it's it, the idea is that students will read in translation a classic every week. So one day you might be reading a Roman classic, one day a Greek classic, later an English classic. And this was a radical idea because the part, the university was organized then and now around kind of departments. So you could take an English class and you would just read English literature or a classics class and just take, just read classic, classics, Greek and Roman classics. So this new course was going to be not affiliated with any particular discipline or department. It was going to be a kind of look at all of the stuff that's really valuable, we think, for an undergraduate to be exposed to. It meant it was hard to find teachers who felt comfortable teaching that kind of range of texts. Course was a huge success at Columbia, and in fact, it influenced the way that the curriculum in American higher education developed. So many schools adopted versions of this model. And for a long time, this was the dominant way in which students encountered the humanities. It's no longer the case. Now, Columbia is a kind of an outlier in maintaining that approach to education, the sort of dominance of departments, the dominance of specialization, the reluctance of faculty to teach outside of the specialty has dom dominates again the, cu the curriculum of American higher education. So it's very rare to find a course in which you can do what I did as a first year student at Columbia, which is encounter all these great thinkers, all these great questions in a way that was vital and alive and connected to not a discipline, but my condition of being a human being.
Yeah, one thing you touched on, which is really interesting, I know you've touched on this in the past before, but we know we've got great institutions around the world with universities. There's a thirst and a zeal of students that one learns knowledge, but the key element in the middle of this particular is the teacher. How important is it to have the right teacher, the qualities, what kind of qualities does it take for the right teacher to influence the students as well? Can you expand on that and how important it is to have the right teachers? Yes, it is it is in, invaluable, inestimable, the role that a t teacher plays. Most people who have had their lives transformed or impacted by education have, that, have had that happen not because some extraordinary intellectual content that they encountered, but because that content was delivered through a particular vehicle, through a particular channel, through a teacher that somehow ignited their mind. And liberal education, unlike other forms of education in the university, is something that happens from person to liberal education happens. I Sometimes I say that it happens by contagion. It's like something that you catch rather than by instruction. A liberal education teacher is concerned with the full development of the individual as a person not as a future lawyer, not as a future banker, not equipping you with the right knowledge to build a bridge or to solve a differential equation. The subject matter is always secondary in liberal education. The primary thing is the development of the student. It's this kind of unfolding, flowering, flourishing of the student that happens always in a unique way. There's no pattern. Every individual is going to be different. And the teacher's concern for the individuality of the student, for the particularity of the student, for the kind of wholesome, full development of the student. That's what drives liberal education. And it is when you, as a student, encounter that. When you encounter somebody who suddenly seems to you to care about you, not just about your mind, that is the that connection, that conduit of really psychological, emotional, really affection, it's what it is that becomes the vehicle through which the education gets transmitted and happens. So teaching and teachers are absolutely critical in the project of liberal education. Yeah, and just in education, they've made a good couple of movies of it. Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams and, and Matt Damon, the story of the teacher and the student and even Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer as well. That's cool. That just shows the power of the teacher who's engaged and brings out the best in the students as well. What qualities do you see from great professors and teachers that really bring out the best in their students? One is that they are not trying to reproduce themselves. That is, their interest is not in reproducing their specialized knowledge. If they are a physicist, their interest in you is not to make you a physicist. Or if, there are, if they are a classicist, their interest is not making you a classicist. Their interest is in equipping you to develop yourself into kind of the best version of yourself. So that kind of prior prioritization of the student over the subject is a quality of the teacher. The teacher is also not trying to persuade you to see the world in the way that he or she sees it. The teacher is trying to, in a way, replace him or herself, does not want you to ape or mimic his thought or her thought, but to develop your own capacity. So there is a, a sort of independent and a skepticism that is interested in fostering. A teacher is also has to be a in the context of a classroom, has to be a very good listener 
and a kind of sort of conductor of conversation. It, there's a kind of skill involved when you're running a discussion. Where do you push? Where do you encourage? Where do you add information? Where do you try to the topic? When do you encourage minority opinion? Or when do you add information into the discussion that shifts, that kind of reframes what's being said? And all of this happens, there is no formula. All of this happens spontaneously. And it is a very but subtle skill that is required to be that kind of discussion leader in a classroom. Yeah, and it's not something you could put on a resume or a profile. I think finding the right people for the right job, it's one of the hardest things in the world. They call it recruitment or headhunting, but we'll move on. It, it's another topic in itself. But talking about Sigmund Freud, how did you uncover Sigmund Freud? What got you started? And he talked about terra incognito, finding out that the world's full of mysteries and the mysteries and shadows that live in our mind. How did you uncover that? And what's the story with Sigmund Freud? Freud has such a bad reputation today, right? So Freud is often, when I first introduced Freud to students, the, often the first thing I hear is, oh, Freud has been discredited. Freud was wrong about everything. And of course, Freud was wrong about a lot of stuff. And he was very bold. He would assert pretty hypothetical and pretty speculative things as if they were undeniable truths. He got a lot of it wrong. But the big thing that Freud got right was that we are not fully transparent to ourselves, that our knowledge of ourselves is fragmentary, that we hide from ourselves even more than we tell ourselves, and that to live an authentic and genuine life involves a kind of skepticism and curiosity about yourself, that the mind, your mind is, as you put it, terra incognita. There are vast regions of the mind that are not accessible to you and that only become accessible through disciplined, dedicated curiosity. So what Freud did for me was reveal myself, my own mind, as an object of study. It has made cautious and in some ways humble about my own certainties, about my own motivations, about my own accounts of myself. It has made me attentive to my emotional responses. There, sometimes there's an image is used to, to describe Freud's kind of understanding of the mind of, of the centaur, this kind of mythical being that has the head of a human being, but the body of a wild horse. And it's like the head is rational, is cognitively developed, abstract, but underneath that is a beast, is an irrational, emotional, chaotic, perhaps lustful, perhaps aggressive beast. And those things live together. So it's made me, and I think it makes any attentive reader of Freud, aware that there's a lot more going on in your thoughts than you think, that there's a lot more going on in your own narratives about yourself, in your own understanding of the world. There are hidden agendas. You are driven by hidden agendas that you hide from yourself. So the, any effort you can make to clarify those agendas and any progress you make in uncovering those agendas deepens and enriches your life in, in just invaluable, priceless ways. Yeah, I think it's an interesting fact that you make in the book as well, that when you're at Columbia, that everyone is on the curriculum, you're accustomed to everyone being in therapy all the time. You say that everyone in your class was at therapy and you shared a personal story of yourself six years in psychoanalysis, untangling the psychic tangles that accumulated in your life. But right now, I meet a lot of authors that talk about shadow work and inner work and childhood traumas. And I think we're all very accustomed to 
now been very open and talking about doing the shadow work as well. We've all got tangles and accumulation of the psychic traumas of our past that make us and shape us to what we are now. Um, talk to me a little bit about psychoanalysis. Back in the day, it was considered a very controversial thing, but now it's very open. Do you see any changes in psychoanalysis now? Yeah, psychoanalysis, yeah, psychoanalysis is hugely different today than it was in the kind of Freudian line. Although psychoanalysis, that term continues to be pretty, pretty Freudian. In fact, when people talk about being trained in psychoanalysis or doing psychoanalysis as opposed to therapy, that's a flag that they are in a more Freudian cast than regular psychotherapy. So psychoanalysis is a sort of Freudian term, but therapy in general has moved very far away from the thing that Freud theorized. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, gestalt therapy, group therapy, marriage counseling. It's really exploded, whereas today it is utterly encrusted in the kind of mental health medical establishment. Again, even while Freud is not, all of these practices that were opened up by Freud's talk method, and it is... I think healthy that people are, that has been largely destigmatized. Now I say largely because it's, there's still a long way to go and there is a socioeconomic marking to it. That is usually people that are more affluent, that are more highly educated, that have more resources at their disposal are much more open to psychotherapy and psychoanalysis than working class, less than non-elites. So there is still tremendous stigma among populations that would really profoundly benefit from therapeutic interventions. There's still a big stigma there. So even though it's much more pervasive and ubiquitous in the culture, it's still too much localized in a particular sort of socioeconomic class. Yeah, just like anything, the low socioeconomic people, they just don't have the resources all the time to do it. And the wealthy people have all the resources and all the time to, to ruminate and think about what they're thinking about and definitely go see someone to get help from it as well. But you just got to stop thinking about that. Moving on to Gandhi. Gandhi's one of my favorites as well. The autobiography, his quest for truth, self-realization. He's looking for moksha and he's on the, always on the verge of death a few times on his search for truth, meeting, wanting to meet God face to face. What's your experience with Gandhi and why is he so important in your life? So Gandhi was a really profound kind of life transforming revelation for me. And I came to Gandhi quite late in my life. That is, all of my formal education was done. I had a PhD, I was a professor, and I had cut my teeth in what's loosely called the Western tradition, reading the Western classics of literature, of philosophy, of religion. But I knew that there was a whole sort of universe of ethical philosophic thought that I had no exposure to and my own appreciation of the Western classics led me to appreciate the fact that these other classics were really worth my attention. But how did I start? Gandhi emerged as a sort of entry point. Let me explore Gandhi because I knew enough. You know, there's a great sort of biopic of Gandhi with Ben Kingsley. Yeah, amazing movie, amazing movie. Amazing movie, right? So you can start there and you will grasp immediately that Gandhi is a kind of hinge figure, that Gandhi is Western educated. He's a lawyer, a barrister trained in England, kind of good English colonial subject to the British empire. But then he is rooted in this deep and ancient spiritual tradition as an orthodox. And he is as learned in the Western classics as he is spiritually committed to his Hinduism. So Gandhi became a kind of a figure that 
through which I entered this whole different ethical universe, this whole different way of understanding spirituality, of understanding politics, of understanding humanity, ethics, justice, truth, that were um, quite different than what I had encountered and which were really powerfully enriching. At the time that I started reading Gandhi, I had also begun to explore meditation. I had a fledgling practice in Buddhist meditation. So Gandhi also fed and invigorated, enriched that, that meditation practice and opened up a sort of dimension of spiritual growth for me that has been, continues to be really central in my life. Yeah, we actually have a similar path. So I'm in between two worlds of Buddhism and Christianity as well. Studied Buddhism for, I think, 20 years and Christianity as well. I think there's a convergence of truth there. Truth is truth, no matter if you agree with it or not. But yeah, talking about Gandhi, for example, he's talking about his life. So it's an autobiography of his life. These aren't things that he sat there and he thought about and wrote about. These are things that he actually lived as well. So people, things that he actually experienced and went through. It's amazing how teaching, you know, liberal arts and education in humanities and just the classics. So there's so much rich knowledge in someone's life experience that just because we don't have to experience it, we can still mentally understand the information and experience by reading those rich texts and experiences of life as well. So yeah, great stuff. The classics are classics because they engage with humanity's deepest questions. The things that we grapple with, the things that when we wake up in the middle of the night in our kind of solitude, causes awe and wonder and sometimes anxiety. Those are the questions that the classics are concerned with. Probably a good segue to talk about why the classics are under threat as well. So can you talk to me about the challenge liberal education has in the growing emphasis of a higher education on workforce training and what you call transactional and instrumental education? There are two ways in which you can think about education, two understandings of education. One is equipping you with very concrete and practical, applicable knowledge. If you study civil engineering, you will learn about how to manage water systems and maybe how to build bridges and about infrastructure, very concrete, applicable knowledge. Then there's another meaning of education that's, that's much older, that sometimes we use it still in English when we talk about somebody who is a child who is educated, a child which is it's cultivated, it's civilized, it's mannered. And so that meaning of education has to do with the sort of human development of an individual. And those two meanings of education have coexisted in the university for a long time. One of them is embodied in the research mission of the university and the professionalizing mission of the university. And one of them is embodied in the liberal arts tradition of the university. Today, the first of those meanings, the research, professional, applied meaning of education has largely overtaken the university. In some ways, for good reason. The story of the modern university is a story of the triumph of science. We have unlocked such powerful technologies and such powerful capacities to master nature and to master the world. So there is no... There's no challenging the dominance of that way, of that notion of learning, of that notion of knowledge in the university. Yet, we are still human beings and we are still caught in basic existential dilemmas that need to, that, that we need to confront rationally, humanely, and which are not examined 
instrumentally. They're not examined for the sake of something else, only for the sake of greater clarity and engagement with those things themselves. Beauty, justice, happiness, love. These are things that we, that constitute our own humanity, our own humanity, and which the humanities explore. Now, one thing that I should say is that sometimes those two missions of the university are placed in a kind of zero-sum game, where if you go to university, you will either get a liberal education, which means that you will end up a kind of maybe very refined and articulate and thoughtful individual, but have no skills with which to go get a job. So a jobless, refined person, or you can go and study something very practical, business, engineering, computer science, in which case you may be a sort of Maybe not that interesting a person to talk to, but you'll be, you'll have a good job and you'll be well placed economically. These two should not, must not be offered as alternatives. The argument I make in the book and the, and the sort of institutional advocacy that I engage in is in embedding liberal education in all of the professional degrees. You want to be, be an engineer, but that engineering knowledge and skill should emerge from a liberal foundation in which you explore questions of humanity, questions that matter to you, whether you're an engineer or a banker or a computer programmer. If you want to be a banker or a business person, similarly, that education should be rooted in a humanistic education. My, my sort of educational activism has to do with embedding the liberal arts education inside as the foundation of all of the degrees and all of the professions. Yeah, well said. And what comes to my, my mind as well, it's you can't be too strong on one hemisphere of the brain. So for example, people are chasing fame. People have fame, spend a lot of money on privacy. And then there's people that want a lot of fame that spend a lot of time to try to get that money, but they don't understand that what comes with that is fame and then no privacy. So two extremes. What I was really trying to basically say is people get out of balance. So getting back to what you're talking about with education, you could be a triple PhD broke, no job, or you could have a great job with really no understanding of the foundational stuff in terms of liberal education. So what I really want to say is what I was getting around to is the best students are the lifelong learners that understand that education doesn't stop when you stop paying for an education at university or when you get a job or when you have kids and have a family. The greatest thinkers and teachers of the world are people like yourself and me who just have a thirst for knowledge and they're continuous lifelong learners and understand that you don't have to have all the answers. That's number one. So drop, drop in the ego and forced an education on people because their parents paid for it. You go to university with paid tuition, you got to do this, you got to do that and you're forced into learning. And then when you get out, you realize that they don't have to learn anymore. And that's really sad as well. Coming back to a society that doesn't value continuous lifelong learning and even people getting into jobs where their, their knowledge is not valued. It's literally just like a robot. Do this job, hit that target, come to work that time, leave then. And then we don't care about your classics, liberal arts, Gandhi, Sigmund Freud, whatever it is, but just be quiet, just go sit in the corner. So that's society, that's culture, that's environment. But you know, how important it is to teach students to become lifelong learners and give them a thirst for knowledge, not just give them the whole meal at university. What's your philosophy on that? And how do you communicate that with students as well? That their time at university will end, but their education will not. I think you raise a really important set of issues and I, it's something that I'd like people to, who are listening to this to walk away with, away with. 
So one thing I often tell my students on the first day of class is at the end of the semester, after we've spent 15 weeks reading classics and grappling with philosophical debates and deep questions of humanity, I'm going to give you a grade because I have to. But if I were being really honest, the grade that I should give you is an incomplete. And 20 years from now, when you come for your alumni reunion, in this scenario, I'm still alive, and to get with it in 20 years, we can have a conversation about what ha how what happened in this classroom fed into the kind of life that you lived. And at that point, I might be able to give you a grade. At that point, I might be able to assess whether you benefited, whether you got what I am trying to achieve in this class. That is, what liberal education does is it reorients you. There's a line in Plato where Plato says education isn't what people think it is, like putting knowledge into souls that lack it. Education really assumes that people have the vision, have the sight, but they're not looking in the right direction. And what education does, it does is it turns them around and gets them to look in the right direction. That's what liberal education does. And that raises this point, which is really I want people to, your listeners to walk away with that liberal education is not something that needs to happen in a classroom. While if you're going to have a university education, university ought to, needs to make that central to the education. Really, this kind of education is something that you can pursue and should pursue wherever you are. Get together with friends, read a good book, have a glass of wine and talk about it, or have a meal and talk about it. Look at a political debate and talk about it, not in the partisan way, but a little bit above the fray. Look at them, go to a park. Engage in the kind of reflection, open and honest inquiry and conversation with others who are different from you that tries to get at the root, at the kernel, at the essence of your experience. That is a liberal education, and that is something that is within the reach of all of us and which we should all pursue. Yeah, absolutely. And one final thing that uh, people don't realize is how powerful tool groups are. You could join a Facebook group on liberal arts. You could join a, a Facebook group on anything. I just joined a Facebook group on, I met a lady and she does NLP. So I joined the NLP group. And you know what? You could jump on a YouTube channel. You can in interview amazing authors like yourself, Roosevelt, and talk deeply about a book. So you've got no excuse now, but you just got to get around those new environments and, and they change as well. So one click of a button and you could be in a new environment and start having new conversations as well. Spark some curiosity new thoughts as well but one last question i want to talk about and expand your experience on is liberal arts across the world you, you've taught and in different countries like latin america china and israel as well advised what's your experience like there and how is it different from the liberal arts in america what experiences can you talk about it's a very curious thing that is happening that while in america liberal arts is on the defensive and contracting in the rest of the world, it is actually in the offensive and expanding. And part of what accounts for that is that people in China, in Latin America, in Asia, are looking at the U.S. and see they're the most powerful and the most successful higher education system. And why is that? Why is it that America produces such innovative culture, such kind of a culture of invention? How, why are there so many Nobel Prizes? Why is there so much creativity? And one of the things that is beginning to dawn on, on, on the rest of the world is that the key to the, Amer to the success of the American higher education system is its liberal arts tradition. It's the fact that in America, every bachelor's degree contains a good, hefty amount of courses that are not in your special in specialization, that are not in your major, that for the most part, you become a professional 
by going beyond your bachelor's degree into graduate school, become a doctor in graduate school, a lawyer in graduate school, a businessman or woman, a journalist, an architect. These specializations come in the postgraduate with a non-professionalizing emphasis in the first four years of college. And I think people are waking up to the fact that this broad foundation in humanistic learning actually is the key to the innovation, to the business success, to the technology, to the scientific breakthroughs, that it is in fact the opening into those things by grounding people in things that are not meant to be applied and are not meant to be sort of money-making. Yeah, they're foundational. These things are foundational. It's they're learning cooking. It's foundational. You know what I mean? People don't learn how to cook. They'll eat shit food for the rest of their life. But people understand nutrition and you can go on and on. But Roosevelt, where can people find more about yourself? Where do you spend time online? And where can people find the book and connect with you as well? Thank you. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube and a lot of podcasts and, of course, faculty page on the Columbia website. You can get basic information where to find me. You can follow me on Twitter at Roosevelt Montas or, or find me on Instagram and Facebook. Also, same, my, my first name and last name is my handle. And the book, Rescuing Socrates, is published by Princeton University Press. It's available at the press's website and, of course, at Amazon, other online and physical booksellers. Yeah, thank you so much. And I just want to congratulate you on your book and all the work you've done so far and all the work you're going to be doing as well. So yeah, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Congrats and keep going. Will there be more books coming from you in the future? Thank you, Michael. There will be more books for me in the future. I'm beginning to work on a book on American political culture and what it means to be American and what are the underlying ideas in the American national project. So expect that out in a few years because I've just started. All right, I'll sit tight and I'll wait patiently. But yeah, thanks for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And to my audience out there, go follow Roosevelt. Check out his books. He's amazing. Get stuck into the liberal arts, humanities, the classics, and start educating yourself because it's never too late to learn. It doesn't matter what age you're at. Your mind's always ready for new stimuli and information. So give it that stimulus. But I'll let you get on with the rest of the day. So yeah, thanks for being a guest on the show. And we shall speak soon, my friend. Okay, take care. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Thanks so much. All right, bye.